Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, hopefully you're doing well and you're continuing to thrive this summer. We're nearing deer season and it's obviously the time to get prepped and ready to go. I'm happy Jake Ellinger is back from Habitat Solutions 360 out of Michigan. Jake, if everybody wasn't familiar, did a podcast with us earlier in the season and he's going to talk today about hunting strategy as it relates to habitat. I think that's really important because we're nearing hunting season and I'm really going to let Jake just roll on this one today because he's got a ton of experience. His success the efficiency of his hunting style, a lot which I can relate to. Him and I are very similar in a lot of that sense, and we approach things very similar. But the way he approaches things is how he's helped his clients reach that pinnacle level of success. And I think that says a lot because it's not just about you. It's not just about you know me and this consulting game. It's about helping those around us improve. And that's really what the focus is of the podcast. Hey, Jake, are you on? Yes, I am, John. All right, man. Welcome aboard. Help him. I'm happy you're back, man. So what's what's been going on with you? How you been? Thank you. You know what? I have been good. Um, I'm nearing the end of my uh, push for the, you know, what you call the spring habitat season. Here we are near the end of July. I've got one or two more clients to take care of that booked uh, with me late in the season. Um, we have been fortunate and we've had uh really a pretty decent spring season. Our, our ground started out pretty cold and the temperatures were lower than they normally are in like late May and early June. And I, I think I've told you before, I, I grow my share of food plots and everything from summer annuals to uh, cool season annuals and some perennials and, uh, and I rotate them a lot, but all my plots are in, they're doing really well. Um, I've tried a couple of different experiments this year just to deal with deer brows and they've been successful. So, um, so I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, the oncoming hunting season. And uh, it's really fun to be able to sit down with you today and talk about this subject of matching your hunting strategy to your habitats. Jake, I want you to get into, before we get there, and, and I, okay. I saw a post that you did on Facebook, and I know you're experimenting with things, and that's been one of your you've been very open about those type of things, whether it's yeah. you're planting switchgrass and sorghum sedan grass. I mean, you, you do a lot of strategy and, and trying new things. You're, you're, you're trying to be groundbreaking for the sense to benefit your, your clients and, and your own it's, self. Exactly. Um, I'm just trying to help the guys that I work with, you know, and, and you know, Johnny, if you've done it personally and been successful or unsuccessful, it's really easy to relay that information to your clients. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to in hearing one of the things you did in your food plots this year that you found to be 
eventful or beneficial? Just just one thing. Okay, so I plant a number of acres of Roundup Ready soybeans just because they're available. I can go to my local ag uh, elevator and get them. Deer love to eat them, and they're part of my late season strategy with overseeding them with cool season annuals, uh, you know, lots of bean pods, high energy food source for later in the year. But what I'm running into is, you know, as these, uh, as, uh, as this area that I live seems to have less doe killing going on. So the, so the deer population is growing and expanding Mm -hmm. and I'm running into now a browse pressure that I used to not have. Uh, and then that first three to four weeks when those beans are first coming up out of the ground. Okay. So what I did this year is I planted uh, my, my beans at the same rate. I, I brought, I just disc and broadcast 50 pounds per acre in that area, you know, maybe 55 here, 45 there, but generally 50 pounds per acre. And then I went and broadcast bin run oats, just went to my local elevator and say, I want to buy, you know, so many bushel of bin run oats. And that's just oats with stems and sticks and some fluff in there, but they're very inexpensive. I think you're looking at 10 or $12 a bushel. Okay. And so I bought those. And so I, I broadcast the beans first just because they're larger seed and it's easier to distribute them evenly. And then I broadcast the oats right over the top of them. And then I, I, I have a flexible harrow drag that I drag to basically cover them with a half inch to a quarter inch of soil and then cultivate. And I tell you what, and we, you know, we were blessed with rain. I had moisture in the soil the day I planted. We got consistent rains every week to two weeks all the way through where we are now. And, uh, and uh, I terminated the oats, sprayed them with uh, glyphosate about 10 days ago. And it was amazing how the oats really protected the uh, soybeans. Hmm. And, and in two locations on the plots that I did this, I purposely left strips, say, 50 yards long by 30 yards across where I didn't plant any oats to say, okay, I want to see what happens to these soybeans that don't have any oats around them. And man, they, they got browse. It just, it's amazing how lazy these deer are. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know yeah. any other better way to say it. The oats are right down in those, or the soybeans are in those oats because the oats will get tall fast. Like those oats got 10, 12 inches tall in three weeks. Yeah. And the soybeans are sitting there at two to four, you know, five inches tall. Still looking really good, but, you know, they're just a slower growth rate. And in the very beginning, the deer browsed on the oats right away because, you know, it's very palatable and they're sweet and they're, they're tender. But once those oats got to be about three to four inches tall, there's, because it was timed planting late May, early June, all the other diverse uh early successional browse that I have throughout the property is all around them. And so these deer just soon hang out in the bedding areas and eat grapevine and, and goldenrod and, and all the young oaks and maples that are coming up. Okay. So they just kind of backed off of the food plots and it was very successful. And right now my soybeans are looking really good. I went out and measured them yesterday and they're 24 inches tall. And Jake, just a few more questions. So is it a forage bean that you planted? Um, you know, this year, it is just a standard ag bean, okay. but it's a variety of ag beans. Okay, okay. Yep, yep. And, that, and that's good because you don't have to spend a gazillion dollars buying some XYZ brand. You can you can buy a, a pretty localized, you know, soybean that may have some v- variety to it that, that's a lot cheaper. And I think a lot of people miss out on that 
topic. I don't know. That's why I've preached to people all the time. Why are you spending a hundred dollars on that bag uh, when I can get you know something comparable for significantly less? I don't know right. if you've you've experienced that. Right. I, I have. Yeah. The yeah, street- I've, I've you know I've tried I've tried the expensive bag beans. I've gone out and tried different varieties of ag beans. You know, different uh, maturity rates and sure. things like that too. Like you said, I'm a I'm a guy that likes to experiment. It's just how my my mind is, and uh, you know it's I've always had really good luck with the uh, inexpensive ag beans. Okay, and uh, you know at the end of the year, it's really going to be Mother Nature and and your deer density. Okay, if you've got a lot of deer. And you can't fence them off, even with my process. You know, if you, if I was if I had twice the number of deer, my beans wouldn't be looking quite so good. But uh, they're they're doing real well here, despite you yeah. know a pretty good sized deer herd here and in I, this area. I like the way that you related that specifically to your deer herd as it stands and as it's developed over time. And there's only so many things you can control in that equation. So that makes you be more conscious of the volume of food that you have on the landscape. And I've continued to preach that either to clients or just even on this podcast is relating the two because there is a density dependence related to food sources that is really critical that we all have to consider as, as landowners or land managers. So I think it's a great point and really kind of a neat idea. There's uh, that, that'll probably spark another discussion for a later podcast of, you know, using other varieties of plants to help protect the ones that you really are trying to develop and establish in those areas. Um, that could be, you know, in this case, it could be sorghum. It could be, you know, oats in your example, but considering other types of plants in those conditions. And like you said, spraying them out at certain times to help, you know, the, the preferred crop to develop and establish. And I don't oh, think this yeah. is totally off topic based on what we're about to talk about, because food is a driver. It's a vegetation type that drives preferences to get deer in certain locations based on already uh, uh, developed or established habitat types or vegetation types that, that deer prefer. So I, I think it's really it kind of an additive topic to the discussion. It, you know, this fits in really good because uh, one of the things I leave with the clients when I, when I'm there for the, for the property walk, you know, whether I'm there, you know, eight hours or 12 hours, um, I explain to them that, you know, you want to have plenty of food, which is early successional growth. If, if your if your property, uh, you know, it, it applies to that, where the deer lives, so that the food plots and the food sources you do grow to create that predictable fall pattern are actually there when it comes hunting season. So you know, the more early succession food that you can spread out in different parts of that property during the growing season of, of your food plot, then, you know, the deer are going to be coming to, to those uh, attractive plots with all that food and droves. Once, you know, we get the frost and everything turns brown and nothing's green in the woods anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. And if to think about, think about this one more, I'm going to take this one further step now that you brought that up, thinking about the moisture levels and the type of soil and the related vegetation that establishes itself because of that and how to manage it over time beyond the food plots to your point and that will drive interest at certain times across the landscape and and thinking about that in your equation so as an example if you're in a riparian area and you've got kind of a stream zone that you're managing thinking is you know precisely about the vegetation the age of that vegetation the richness of that and what preferences deer may have in those areas at certain times and starting to evaluate, observe that, that bit of data. So that that's kind of plays into the time 
uh, sampling here that we're, we're kind of about to talk well, about, you know, you know, uh, one thing that we, you know, anybody that gets into this has got to, uh, recognize is it all starts with the soil. Okay. If you've got well-drained poor soil, not only your food plots are going to struggle and you're going to need to improve, uh, everything from organic matter to, to nutrients and ability to hold moisture, but where you want it, where you're doing your timber stand improvements, if that soil is not the best and doesn't hold a lot of moisture and nutrients, you're not going to get the growth that you'd like either. And then, and, and then to compound that, if you've got a high deer density, now you've got what's going on in a lot of part of uh, the Midwest, right? Yeah. <laughs> guys have major cuts and they're dreaming about how thick it's going to be. And then they go out there and it's not thick because the deer are eating everything. Kenny Kane, nope. Kenny Kane, and I from—he's a forester that's on this. We just talked about the herbivory in the Midwest versus the Northeast, and to your point, I mean, you just nailed it there. That's exactly what we pointed out to people. Do not expect you're going to get the type of region that that you anticipate because of the densities in those regions. Herbivory is yeah. the thing that kills. That's, you know, that's the bloody mess that people are dealing with. All right, I'm going to push. Yeah. I'm going to push you down the road of this conversation because I totally detracted everything you were planning. That, that's okay, right. John. So let's let's drive into early season because we want to talk about early season. We're we're on the brink. We're not. We're close to hunting. What is early season like? What what are habitat preferences that you're seeing? What are the environments that you're seeing deer are preferring in, the, in, the, so, in that scenario? You know, uh, there's a lot that goes on in the deer herd in early season. Uh, most importantly, the bucks have shed velvet. They're just starting to work scrapes and rubs. Uh, we're a long way from the rut, but food is starting to become a very big deal for deer. Okay, does, swans, and uh, bucks of all age classes. So for me, and what I've learned with this property is food plots located in the right area that are um, on the way with with winds that are uh, cohesive to mature deer movement so they can walk nose into the wind or angling into the wind to approach those food sources, you can get a pretty good predictable uh, deer pattern. And, uh, you know, weather conditions, like I talked about last time we were on, you know, can play big keys, you know, cold fronts versus uh you know, mild weather and that sort of thing, but food plots and then the transition zones between bedding and food, because deer are very, very sensitive in early season with any kind of human impact, human disturbance around bedding areas. Um, and then there's also like what I call socialization corridors. And those are going to be the, the inside edges of your wood lots, maybe that 20 to 40 yards and maybe you've got a food plot or an ag field on there, but that inside edge is an area that a lot of mature deer kind of hang out that last 45 to right down to the last 10 minutes of daylight as they approach that food source. And in that socialization area, they'll make some rubs, they'll have some scrapes, but it's far enough away from the bedding area that it's, if the wind conditions are right, you could potentially have a hunting set up there. But pretty much my entire early season focuses around afternoon hunts and near or close to food or a transition zone close to food. I stay completely away from bedding areas. And occasionally, you know, I, I, I uh, supply all this information to my clients. We go over it with a phone call once or twice. And then it's the middle of October and the guy sends me a text message and he's all bummed out because he he wasn't really thinking about 
how important it is to stay away from bedding areas in the morning. And he got too close to the bedding area and he jumped, you know, his target buck and, and his hunt did not uh, pan out the way he had dreamed. And so that's why I believe that uh, for myself, everything I've learned with, you know, I, I'm pretty much a strike killer, you know, go in, yep. I know about a target deer set up and hunt under the right conditions. And it's going to be around food, uh, transition zones, very close to the food or these areas where they're spending time, right? The fringes of the edges of cover, creating scrapes and rub lines. Jake, can I ask you to describe what a transition zone is like on a portion of your property so people can understand what that may look like versus bedding versus food plot? What, what are those? Okay. Describe okay. it. So, so the best way to, to describe that is um, it's not going to appear to look like bedding. It's going to have some, some random large trees in there that were left on purpose, so it's not real thick. Um, I might have a few hinge trees here and there just to kind of like nudge a, a, a direction, a line of travel. Hinge a tree here, hinge a tree there. Everything would be hinged very low, knee high and lower. And it's just kind of to, to give them kind of a bottleneck area, uh, similar to a pinch point, but not really a pinch point. It's going to be 100 yards from a bedding area and probably within 40 to 60 yards or even closer to a, a food plot. So you're going to have some uh, mature trees. You're going to have some early successional growth in there. And it's just a place where there's enough side cover that the deer feel comfortable moving through during daylight, but it's not bedding. Okay. It is just an area that, that, uh, the habitat is not good enough for bedding. There's not enough cover in there. When the leaves go, it's just too open for them. But it's a place they do feel very comfortable about moving through during that time of the year, heading out to the food sources in the evening. Okay, that was a great description of that. I think people can, and giving the relative distances and the layout, that I think that's really good. All right, one more question for you. Uh, sir, the term social zones, social hubs, I mean, I use zones. That's what I've used for a long time. But the socialization description that you gave earlier, you know, inside the timber and maybe there's a carve out or, you know, a small food source in there. Can you give some detail to that? Because I think people would want to understand what does that actually mean? So anytime you come to an edge of, let's say, uh, a standard woodlot that you and I see and it's closed canopy and it's mature trees, but along that inside edge, where it, where it transitions from a mature woods to an open ag field or an open food plot, sunlight does penetrate that first 10 to 15 yards. And because of that, there's a few more small trees and bushes and vegetation growing there than there is deeper back into that mature forest, okay? So it's those are the edges that I'm uh, talking about where the scrapes and the rub lines, because these deer are slowly making their way to that food source and they like to hang out right on the edge and look out through that while they're still standing in that transition zone out towards the ag fields you know all the the does and the young bucks and the button bucks they've traded through and they're out in that food already but your mature deer are going to hang back and watch and you know and they, they know how to survive so they're going to let everybody else sacrifice their life first before they step out but in that process they 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 definitely spend time leaving their their scent, uh, make it you know making sign, and doing what bucks do, and that is showing off to each other or to the girls that are walking by. 
Now, do you do anything enhancement wise to those social zones to make them more uh, advertise them more to the deer? Is there anything? Do you put scrapes in there? Do you what do you put in there to give? I would say that the number one thing I do when I've got a, a social zone, you know, there's there's an existing trail there. Maybe I've gone through there and enhanced it, and and any any of the logs and downfalls that come, that fall in the summer, I'll go through there with a chainsaw and cut, you know, a three four foot chunk out so the deer have easy walking. And the number one thing I do is somewhere between twenty and twenty five yards from my stand position, I will put up a mock scrape, and that's either going to be you know a limb that I pull down, but typically I use grapevines and uh, wire them or hang them on uh, on, a, on an existing tree limb using a, a uh, you know electrical zip tie, and I've got it hanging in the right spot, and almost every deer using that that path as they're slowly working out towards that food source um, will come through and either uh, 99% of them touch the licking branch, smell it. Uh, young bucks make a scrape. Uh, older bucks might uh, just filter through downwind to just smell who's been there. But that's probably been the most uh, successful early season technique is having mock scrapes in that, you know, in that, that, that final 20, 20 yards to 10 yards before the, you reach that opening in that socialization corridor. Jake, great description. Thanks for playing that out for us. So yeah. let me move you to the next. So we, we've, we've talked about early season. Now we're transitioning into mid-season and, and set the tone and what you're, what you're considering at that point. And maybe describe a little bit what's happening. Uh, at, you know, we're, we're nearing breeding period, pre-rut period. What, what, is that, what is that like for you? Yeah, so, you know, typically that's going to be right around Halloween. Our cameras are definitely letting us know that bucks of multiple age classes, including shooters now, are moving more. They're, uh, they're, you know, you might have cameras on scrapes, and you're getting, you know, lots of bucks on scrapes during the night, but you're getting some good bucks during the day. And so, you know, it's it's coming. These these bucks now know that the big event is nearing. So, you know, they're they're exposing themselves in daylight more, way more than they did, you know that you know, the last week of September and those first two weeks of October. So now I'm going to concentrate more myself on pinch points. And these, you know, and you know, pinch points can be man-made, you know, natural. You can have a wetland and a, and, you know, a, a rock wall or a wetland and two or three big treetops that the timber guys left two years ago. And you've got a 25 yard gap and the deer just love to move through that gap when the wind is in the right direction to where they feel confident going through that. So I'm going to focus from that time of the year on and pinch points, funnels, uh, travel corridors where mature bucks are moving from one bedding area to another or from a bedding area to a food source or food source to bedding area. And then as it gets a little bit more into the season, now we're talking first week in November. I am now going in these areas in the morning. I'm getting either right on top of the bedding areas or in the edges of the bedding areas. And I'm now hunting, you know, I'm going in to try and get an opportunity on a target animal. Jake, let me ask you this question. And this is something that, that I kind of, sit on quite a bit as the season progresses for me my anxiety goes up if i'm not killing earlier in the year or done by a certain point of the year and we'll just say that mid mid season which to me kind of starts right around the 24th 25th 26th in that timeline 
at least that's my definition in my world, um, I start to get really nervous because things become a little bit more erratic and movements. What have you done? And when I say erratic, um, it's, it's the traffic is less controlled. I mean, even if you have the property well managed, you know, you've got these you know, very defined trail systems, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's hard to get, you know, the, the predictability down to the nth degree because these bucks are running all over the place. So your decision to get really close to the bedding areas, is that essentially to eliminate or reduce that kind of, I, I want to just say, variableness in their travel patterns? What, what's the strategy behind that? Well, I'll, you know, I'm glad you asked that question, John. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try and keep this not too uh, long, but I'll tell you what my strategy is. And I learned this a long time ago, early in my habitat days, you know, building bedding areas, creating travel corridors. And you'll hear a lot of good deer hunters use this term, hunt the does, hunt the does, hunt the does, right? And so in early season, where's the does? They're all over in the food plot. When it gets to that 24th October, uh, 1st of November, the does are, they're very aware of what's going on with these bucks too. And they're putting a lot of pressure on them and they're leaving the food plots because Every time they're out in the open, somebody's out there chasing them. So what I have found is that my strategy is to get in close to these really good. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in creating a Hotel Hilton instead of a uh, uh, no knock on Motel Six, but I don't want a Motel Six bedding area on, on <laughs> yeah. that property. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I, number one, my bedding areas are really good. Plenty of openings, plenty of trails that are all conducive to regardless of how the buck wants to approach that bedding area, depending on the wind direction. Okay. So he's always got options to go in, how he can get out. He's always got security and side cover. And so I, you know, I'm thinking right along with the does is the does are feeling the pressure. They're spending more time back in the cover. Well, if you're back in the cover where the does are at, guess who else is there? And you're right. It becomes less predictable because these bucks are, are now, uh, their range is extending. They're, uh, they're getting a bit uh, impatient. You know, they want to get on the game and get it going quick. Um, you know, they're not real predictable like, like they are in early season. But if you, you know, uh, hunt smart, use the right wind, don't overhunt, and really pay attention to your scent control the best you can, um, you can put yourself in a position to where you don't feel the anxiety. And I feel pretty confident. When I go into these places, it's like, well, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get an opportunity to kill. Pretty good chance I'll see the deer I'm looking for. But, you know, in archery equipment, you know, it's never over till it's over. Right? <laughs> yes. I yes. mean, you can be 10 yards, cut, walking nice and e- everything's easy. And you can, you know, you know how it goes. And everything blows up in an instant, you know, because of something, you know, another deer runs in, another buck runs, it runs in, doe stomps her foot and snorts that you didn't see behind you. All kinds of things happen. So, uh, but I am trying to put myself where there is more constant travel. And uh, in, in, on this property, the way it's set up with the food and all the good habitat that I've created, there's a lot of buck activity. And, uh, you know, and I'm, a, I'm an all-day hunter. When I, when I go into those bedding areas, I'm not leaving at 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm there all day. Jake, let me ask you another question, um, and and I can echo everything you said. That was that was excellent. When you create, uh, and I want your opinion on this, when you're creating this this mecca, and we'll, we'll go to property that you've been working on for years, your own. Have you found that your strategy, obviously, it's evolved over time. 
Have you found that the attraction levels, uh, more deer immigrating on your property, we talked about population earlier, but you're starting to house bucks that you may previously have not had awareness of um, just as a result of all the improvements that you have. I know that there's some deer that come back on an annual basis and, and, you know, maybe those deer are less mobile and um, more sedentary, so they stick around. But have you found also that you're, you're getting some of those better quality deer in the area, spending more time on your property that may were not on their property uh, several years before that. Have you found that a little bit on your property? Kind of intrigues me. Oh, I, you know, I'm hundred percent, John. Okay. Um, as, as the, as the habitat has improved, so has, you know, uh, not only the buck age structure, but the numbers of mature bucks. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, you know, uh, in, in, you know, trying to outwit uh, a, a mature whitetail buck, uh, you know, he's got all kinds of instincts. And he's got different reasons for doing what he's doing. And some have, have uh, bold personalities and some would rather just hide in the thick cover and only move, you know, just, you know, just during gray light and those sort of things. But, but when, in a general sense, yes, I've seen, I've seen an improvement in the number of mature bucks and that's another reason that I uh, am as picky as I am when it comes to growing my food, because when you get into the middle of the rut, you know, which here is November 15th, most of the soybeans, all the corn has been picked. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Everything's brown. We've had, we've had, you know, we've had temperatures down to eight above zero, 10, 12 above zero. You know, you're going to have early November with morning lows like that, and a little bit of ice on the wetlands. And so now it's all about the food. Well, if you've got the really good cover and now, you know, I've got standing soybeans and I've got brassicas and I've got chicory and clover and I've got alfalfa. I've got all this diverse food, not to mention all the woody browse in the bedding areas. Heck yes, I'm going to I'm going to stack up the deer numbers. And I do. Yeah. And I think that's important for people to recognize. So I wasn't leading Jake down that we have not even talked about that topic, but the immigrating numbers. And I've said this before on this podcast, the immigration, the number of deer that are, you know, coming into your property over time, using that as a factor to evaluate. I was controversial on one of the other podcasts uh, that I've been on uh, describing my differences of opinion for some of the biologists and uh, the basis of that and, and how they measure numbers and how they look at, you know, deer herds and the landscape. And, you know, just my own perspective on things. Uh, that said, Jake, I think that's really interesting. So thanks for sharing. Right, I'm going to push you to now late season so uh, unfortunately jake you haven't been successful this season we're in the late season what are you doing you know what are the deer what are the deer wanting at this point yeah so you know um as uh, several good bi- biologists that i think an awful lot of use this term they say the big event is over okay and it is the major part of the rut is over we're it's in uh, in most of the midwest we're getting cool temperatures with some snow on the ground or or more snow on the ground depending what state you're in and everybody's interest is focused on two things, food and staying alive, security. Okay. So, so I'm leaving the cover. I'm not going into the cover. Um, it's a two prong approach. Number one, a lot of these nice bucks that I don't want to see die that are two and maybe three and a half years old. I don't want to mess with them because they've, they've gone to my property as a sanctuary and they're going to stay in that thick cover. Cause the orange army about scared them to death two weeks before that. And, and now there's food, and of course there's girls. So they're going to go from really good cover back to food. So I'm hunting 
the property a lot like early season. I'm hunting only in the afternoon. I'm hunting on good food sources or right on those transition zones close to the food sources. And I, and this is when I'm really, really careful about how I hunt. Okay. And a lot of people later in the season, they, it's kind of like they're not near as careful with their boots and, and how they enter and, Oh yeah, I should have took a shower, but I don't have time. You know that I, I do just the opposite. I'm really, really careful because I've got deer that I want to see survive to the next year, maybe two more years. Okay. And so I am, I'm real picky. I don't hunt all that often, but I'm hunting food plots and transition zones. And I'll just tell you, I get, I get my chances. Okay. I've, I've killed some, some beautiful late season deer. Um, I also, uh, pass a lot of really good late season deer because at that time of the year I'm, I'm into the building phase, you know, and hopefully by then I have that deer, uh, down that I've wanted, or I've had the opportunity and decided, you know what, I'm just going to let him go. And, uh, and I, and I've been known to do that. And I, and I did that last fall, you know, we had another, had, a, had another really nice target buck and I had, I had my opportunity and I said, you know what, I'm just, it's late in the season. There's a really good chance he's going to uh, survive because he's living here. He's feeding here in the evenings and in the mornings and he's back in the bedding areas. And, uh, you know, some years it all works out and they survive. So, you know, that, that's, that's my strategy. So I'm trying not to go back into those bedding areas. And, and especially when you're thinking about winter conditions, late season, we're into December you get up in the morning, the ground is, it, whether you have snow or not, we've got a good hard frost. So every step you're making, it sounds like you're walking on potato chips, okay? So I just can't imagine people walking, you know, 150, 300 yards into a woodlot when it's, you know, eight above zero and every step, and it's one of those quiet, just dead mornings. This deer here, you're coming from, you know, a half mile away. So I'm an afternoon hunter at that time of the year. So in your areas where the deer are residing, and it sounds like you're not getting too close to any of that, you know, what, what type of cover do you find most advantageous that type of year? What, what have you done in those areas? I know you've done a lot of cutting and, you know, managing yep, so the stem density. What, what is it? What do those areas look like? So two things, you know, the, the, the hinge cutting, the, the conventional falling that has created all kinds of stem density and side cover. Definitely deer are using those. But I also have about seven and a half to eight acres of an area that I planted a variety of different conifers over 30 years ago. And they just fill that spot up. They are in there like crazy. Because, you know, conifers are, are, are a great winter thermal cover. It's getting colder. Uh, there's, you know, we're getting, eight, you know, we're getting eight inch snowfalls at that time of the year now. Yep. So these bucks and does and, and fawns, they pile into that, that cover. And it just turns out that it's strategically located within 100 yards of, of my hidden destination food plot. So it works out real good from a, a late season hunt with a, uh, a cold front north, north, northwest wind. Uh, those bedding areas are northwest of and uh, northwest and northeast of that food source. So it's very advantageous for them to get up, you know, middle of the afternoon, and slowly work their way out to the food source. So I'm gonna I'm gonna add to Jake's point because I got to put my big nose in, in his business. Uh, there's rule sets that I typically employ in the properties. These northern latitudes, based upon you know the snow loads specifically, and again these could be clumpy areas of conifers, etc. 
The typical roll set is around, um, we typically do eight acres per 40. So eight acres of coniferous cover per 40 acres in these areas. So thinking about that is a basic criteria. Now that could be not acre, eight contiguous acres. It could be broken up across different bedding areas to kind of create that ultimate stay where deer have that, like Jake said, five-star hotel. Just a criteria to consider on your property. Maybe you don't have the real estate for it, or maybe the soil type doesn't allow for you know certain coniferous trees to grow in those areas. But please consider that because definitely northern latitudes, you know, and across the across the country could could be helpful. So just want to add to Jake's point. At least I, that's a strategy. Not only have I watched uh, the benefit of doing exactly that on my own property here that I've managed for forty some years, John. But a lot of my clients that now have, you know, 10, 15 years into the program with me that put the conifers in either one location or broke it up into three different locations, anywhere from 8 to 10, 12 acres, are now seeing those exact benefits. And, and, and yeah. like say, a, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the areas in, uh, in these Midwestern states that were, you know, cleared for farming and then, you know... Uh, you know, grandpa sells it, and the nephew ends up with forty-five or sixty-five acres, and he, you know, and he's rebuilding it. And there's not a, there's there's not a spruce or a pine tree anywhere. So he adds that, and now in that two-mile section, he's the only guy with ten acres of conifers. Well, you know, and this is and boy, what a difference that makes. Absolutely, okay. ab- absolutely, and and it's funny. I had a, a, a there's two guys that follow this podcast that are that do consulting like you and I, and. Um, one of them had called me not too long ago asking, he wanted to know some of my rule sets and strategy. And I shared a bunch of stuff with, with him. He's, a, he's in a different region than I am. And, uh, you know, these are some of those rule sets you're starting to employ in your properties, you know, particularly in the northern latitudes and giving them, giving, I mean, I'm giving a consultant a recommendation to do these things, which is, I always find this is fun. I mean, we could exchange and share information, but Jake, you know, I'm learning from you just listening to this and listening to your real tactics and strategies. And I hope people are taking the time to kind of take some notes here, because I think this will do very, very well if you start kind of picking apart, you know, what do I need to do? Well, how do I need to purpose this area for deer? And and obviously, Jake has, has found major success on his property and obviously can late season hunt. All right, I got one more question for you. So yes, on, on your property, and I, I don't, you know, I, I think I've cyber stalked your property before. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure, sure you have. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure I have. So, so in your layout, and I remember kind of like where your house is, and then you've got kind of L-shaped food plots. And anyhow, do you have like long distance shooting into the, some of those areas from the house where, where you don't have to step far into the properties. Do you have some well, layouts like that too? I would say to, um, I have 12 acres of warm season grasses okay. Okay, in, in what once was just tillable ground. Okay. And this year they are beautiful. We had, we had the most successful hot burn. I mean, the conditions were ideal. And right now I've got big blue stem over eight feet tall. Wow. Oh wow! And I just I just moved a, a an elevated blind into a row of spruce trees strictly for observation and gun hunting, and I think it's going to be absolutely incredible. I had a good friend of mine who's in the business; he has a consulting business, and you know, uh, so he so he's learned from me and gone on and started his own business. 
uh, right here in Michigan, and he's just a great guy, and he helped me move that blind, and it was it's quite an ordeal taking a blind that's already 14 feet up on legs right. and setting it down in a trailer and moving it and then setting it back up again. But we did it <laughs> and got it right where I wanted it. And, uh, boy, yeah, so I do. I, I you know, that's probably going to be the one place where I'm going to have an opportunity for a 125 to 140-yard shot. Okay. And how far away? And I'm a muzzle loader hunter. You know, right. I'm, I'm still one of those guys that likes to, I like to put the, the odds in the deer's favor. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt with archery equipment or I'm going to hunt with a muzzle loader, one shot. That's all you need is one shot. Okay. You take your time, you'll kill him, you know, and if, if you know your weapon, right. Right. I'm not going to say uh, bad things can happen because, hey, bad things can happen. But anyways, uh, I'm looking forward to hunting that this year. For two reasons, and one is it can be an early season observation stand, and you know that that could be a whole other um, discussion that we could have because there's a lot to be said about when you want to be out, you want to know what your bucks are doing. You're only going to gain a certain amount of information from from your cameras because all that's telling you is he's going through this area. Well, where else is he? Okay, and there and it's neat to have observation stands where you're really you're not there to kill deer, but you're there to learn to find out what they're doing and where they're moving. Yeah, and I, I without know, impacting them because you're 150 yards away from them. Right, you know? and 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 I've yeah. I've had a little bit of luck of the draw. A buck a couple years ago, I I sat in an observation stand. I plan on trying to kill him in the afternoon. And he just so happened to walk from the area. I thought he transitioned right past the observation stand and I whacked him. So, I mean, sometimes an observation stand yeah. can turn into, you know, a real, a real opportunity for you. And, and the same thing with this one, even though I'm going to hunt this, uh, some early season archery, I've planted chicory and clover right up tight next to these, this line of conifers that I set it up in. I've got three, three rows of conifers that at one time was enrolled in what was called a, uh, a windrow program mm-hmm. to stop wind erosion. And then the state of Michigan discontinued that program. And I, you know, and I was only getting, you know, a hundred bucks a year. Okay. That's all they, pay, but it was something. And uh, so now these trees are, I'm going to guess geez, you know, they're 18, 20 feet tall. And I nestled it right into those spruce trees. And there's a good chance I could have a shooter come walking right up that chicory and clover. Yeah. And if he walks up there, in early archery season, hey, you know, he's probably going to die. Yeah, yeah, you're not going <laughs> to complain about that opportunity. Nope. Oh, that's nope. just like just like it worked for you, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, anything else you want to add to the discussion today? Well, what I, I guess the one thing I want to say is um, don't be in too big a hurry to get in on deer that you know are using your property. Let them come to you in early season. Yes, you can, you can be uh, – uh, Everybody watches all kinds of video guys that are extremely aggressive. They go in, man, I was aggressive. I went in, I killed him. But when you own, you know, whether it's your 40 acres or 50 acres, whatever the size is, say you go in there and you're aggressive and you don't kill him. And now he discovers that you're in there hunting him when you're back, you're back sleeping at night. Now he's, he's, he smells where you touched this and things were disturbed and he can even see, you know, just the ground disturbance near, near pay attention to lots of details if you do that, your chances for killing him uh, go down really, really fast, okay? You, you know, if the deer is aware of you, he's real hard to get close to. So I, I, I always tell people, try and be patient and just let those deer come to you in early season. And that you, you go to the deer is during the rut. That's when you go to the deer. So 
Can't uh, disagree with you more. You're you and you and me are cut from the same cloth. Uh, just just oh, di- di- just different states. Um, yeah, just different states. <laughs> um, and I want to oh. add one thing to the conversation today. And I and I've said this before on the podcast. I love Jake's on this. Number one, number two. What we've talked about today is building a deer herd, and we've talked about it all season. His decisions to pass up some of these deer late season. I hear you only build a deer herd in the fall. You only, guys, that's baloney. Uh, and, and if I hear any more of that uh, discussion on certain uh, YouTube channels, I'm going to go bonkers because it, it's it's all about this all-season attraction and interest and strategy. And, and Jay kind of laid it out today. We talked about the demands during hunting season, but the interest should be building all season long. And that he's planning ahead for his next year based on his end of the season strategy and throughout that entire hunting season for that matter. But you know, that that's the difference between somebody that's focusing on really what, what a deer's biological needs are. And obviously he's got employed uh, coniferous trees and, and late season food because he wants to create a degree of health, you know, across his landscape, attracting deer at all times of year. And again, that's what makes him successful. So I just wanted to add a little piece of this at the end because I think there's some misinformation out there that's that's kind of tweaked me recently, and and I, I got to speak my piece. Yeah, I'm right there with you, John. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right, Jake. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I think you know maybe before hunt season or right around hunt season, we'll get you on again, and we'll talk about what you're doing and where you're at with things, and and maybe get into some of the details of a, a key deer that you're trying to you know set your sights on this this season, and and maybe a story or two. So that'd be fun. That that would be awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, man. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Yep. You're welcome. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.